iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing all right? What? No, we're not going to accept that. We're going to do that one more time. We're going to do that just one more time. It's a beautiful summer evening. How are you guys doing tonight? Come on. That's a little more like it. So we're looking for. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Eugene Hernandez, and tonight's guests, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Bill Haney. Welcome. Guys, thank you for taking, uh, taking the time on what I'm sure is a busy and beautiful Friday afternoon for you. It's really great out there today. Um, this is um, clearly an issue that you both believe passionately about. What I want to do is kind of start, and we're going to watch some clips in a little while, but what I want to do is sort of start by kind of laying the foundation because um, it's such an important and timely and urgent issue that I want to sort of set the, set the tone by sort of helping people understand the state of, of not only what's going on in the specific situation with the Appalachians, but, um, but with coal as a broader um, issue. So maybe if you could help educate, help explain to some of us here in the audience sort of what the, uh, the urgency of this and the crisis well, that we're... Uh, coal is, half the energy of, the, of our country comes from coal. Mountaintop removal is a particularly damaging form of coal mining that has increased in frequency over the past two decades. Yeah. Most of it is illegal, yeah. but the coal companies led by Massey Coal have been able not only to get, they've been able to get away with committing tens of thousands of criminal acts by subverting democracy in West Virginia. The um, mountaintop removal mining is a type of mining that is designed to replace human workers with explosives and large machines. Um, they, uh, and as, I, as it said in the clip, they, these companies, led by Massey, detonate 2,500 tons of ammonia nitrate explosives every day in West Virginia. It's the equivalent of a Hiroshima bomb once a week. And they use giant machines, and they, they blow up the explosives. They, they detonate the explosives to remove the tops off, off the mountains, and then they, to get at the coal seams beneath. Then they take the rock debris rubble that's left, and, which is called overburden, and they scrape it into the adjacent river valley using machines that are 22 stories high, cost a half a billion dollars, and practically dispense with the need for human labor. When my father was fighting strip mining in Appalachia back in the 60s, I remember a conversation that I had with him when I was 14 years old, where he said to me, they're not just destroying the environment, they're permanently impoverishing these communities because there's no way that they can regenerate an economy from these barren moonscapes that are left behind. And he said they're doing it so they can break the unions, which is exactly what they did. When my father told me that, there were 151,000 unionized mine workers in West Virginia digging coal out of tunnels in the ground. Today, there are fewer than 15,000 left. So nine out of 10 jobs has been lost through a systematic, deliberate, merciless strategy by the industry to eliminate jobs and replace them with machines and explosives. My father used to say that uh, West Virginia ought to be the richest state in the country, judging by the wealth 
beneath the land, but, in, but it has the 49th poorest people. So this mantra that is used by the industry that, well, we're bringing jobs and we're bringing prosperity to the state of West Virginia is just a lie. Coal is a net loss to, Virgin to West Virginia, a huge net loss, and it's a giant net loss to our country. It says they say they're cheap, they say they're clean. When they say they're clean, we know it's a dirty lie. When they say they're cheap, it's also a lie. It's the most catastrophically expensive way to boil a pot of water that's ever been devised if they had to internalize the costs of their production. Nationally, according to the National Academy of Sciences, every freshwater fish in America, including every freshwater fish in New York State, now has dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. The mercury is coming from coal-burning power plants. According to EPA, if you go to their website, you can see it right now. There's a, uh, there are 47,000 people who die every year in the United States from respiratory illness caused by ozone and particulates coming from coal-burning power plants, which also cause 10, 10 million asthma attacks annually and a million lost workdays. According to CDC, mercury from coal plants has infiltrated the wombs of one out of every six American women. And there are 600 who are now have dangerous levels of mercury in their, in their bodies. There are 640,000 children born in this country every year who've been exposed to enough mercury in their mother's wombs to ca cause at least the permanent loss of one IQ point of, of permanent loss of, uh, and other forms of brain damage, but at the minimum, a permanent loss of at least one IQ point. I got my levels of mercury level uh, recently measured. I, I have a fishing license in this state that costs 30 bucks every year, and I eat a lot of the fish. And my levels are 10 times what EPA considers safe. I was told by Dr. David Carpenter, who's up at SUNY Albany, and who's the National Authority on Mercury Contamination, that a woman with my levels of mercury in her body would have children with cognitive impairment, with permanent brain damage. Um, I said to him, you mean she might have? And he said, no, 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 the science is very certain. Uh, she, her, her children would have it, probably an IQ loss of five to seven points, a permanent IQ loss if, they had this, if that woman had the same levels of mercury that I have in my body. And as I said, according to uh, CDC, there's, there's 600, over 640,000 children born in our country every year who've been exposed to dangerous levels of mercury in their wombs. The Adirondacks, which are two and a half hours north of here, where I take my kids kayaking and fishing and hiking and camping, the oldest protected wilderness on the face of the earth, we had the right to expect that generations of our citizens would be able to enjoy those landscapes unspoiled. But today, one-fifth of the lakes in the Adirondacks is sterilized from acid rain, which also comes from those coal plants, and which has destroyed the forest cover on the high peaks of the Appalachians from Georgia to, North, Georgia to northern Quebec. So these are some of the costs of coal. But the biggest cost of coal is the destruction, the absolute destruction, of the oldest mountain range in our country, one of the cultural centerpieces of our nation where bluegrass music came from, where NASCAR racing and so many of the cultural uh, gifts of our country. And in the last 10 years, they have flattened an area of the Appalachian larger than the state of Delaware, destroyed. They have, they have blown up the 500 biggest mountains in West Virginia. 
and they've buried illegally 2,500 miles of rivers and streams. If you buried 100 feet of, the Hudson, of a Hudson River tributary, we would make sure you went to jail. But in West Virginia, they've been able to get away with this because at the, while they destroy the mountains, they are also subverting democracy and muzzling the press. Well, and you said something very, um, something that I found really, <laughs> it's a really heavy topic because you said, you said something, and it's a, it's a scary situation because you said something the other day on an interview, I think it was on Morning Joe interview the other morning or one of the interviews I saw you on, you were talking about how this, um, this illegal situation continues and it's allowed to continue because there's no, there's no uh, movement that's able to stop it because of the... Uh, well, I mean, if, if, can you explain how is it possible that something like this that's illegal can continue to happen? Is what well, I'm getting you know, at. I, I debated Don Blankenship, who's the head of Massey Cole, the CEO of Massey Cole, and in this film it shows that he's collected over the past, I don't know, 15 years, $190 million in compensation. And his compensation comes from from dropping the compensation to his workers. He, he has broken the unions in Appalachia almost single-handedly. So his workers, after 25 years of working in the mine, get $15 an hour. There's a starting time. There is no quitting time. They have to get their 400 feet and that of, of coal, and if they have to stay, that means staying 16 hours or 22 hours, they stay in the mine and get it. And, uh, and there's a... There's an interview, I don't know if they're going to show it in one of the clips, with one of the miners who used to be a union miner. He went to work for Massey, and he says it was like we're, uh, walking from light into the darkness because of the working conditions of Massey. And, of course, 29 miners were killed last year. And, and uh, the report that was released this week at the Upper Big, Big Branch Mine says points directly at Don Blankenship for the, for the death of those miners. But I asked Don Blankenship just before the Upper Big Branch um, uh, mining disaster, the explosion there, I debated him on television in West Virginia. I had a 90-minute debate, and I said to him, you know, your own records show that you had 67,000 violations of the Clean Water Act over the past five years. That should be $31,000 per violation penalty. You've also had tens of thousands of violations of other labor laws, mining laws, safe, uh, safety, health laws, and environmental laws. Is it possible for you to make a profit, for your company to make a profit without violating the law? And he said no. So this is a criminal enterprise. And their business plan is that they're going to break the law, but that they're going to get away with it by disabling the government's enforcement powers. And they've done that by essentially subverting every aspect of democracy in West Virginia. If you're in West Virginia, if you're an individual in West Virginia, you own a piece of property near, the, near a, a mining site and they rain boulders down on you and toxic dust and they poison your children, poison your well, dry up your stream, destroy your cattle, you have no rights to stop them. If you have, um, if you, if you live in a town and you want to enact zoning laws, you cannot do that in West Virginia. They have taken local democracy away from the people. They've taken transparency, which is the hallmark of democracy, away from government. You don't see, uh, everything they do is in secret because of course it's illegal. And you know, the Selma March, which everybody's heard of in this country, had 600 people when they, during the first march. Well, in West Virginia, over the past year, there have been 2,500 people arrested, but nobody knows about it. 
My children are going down there to get arrested next week. And nobody knows, and along with a lot of other uh, members of my family. But nobody knows what's happening in West Virginia because they've also been able to muzzle the press. They've also corrupted the judiciary. And even this Supreme Court, you know, with Roberts and Alito and uh, Clarence Thomas and all of these other, you know, pro-corporate judges, even this year, they rebuked the West Virginia court for its, its sweetheart, cozy, um, in bed with the coal company deals. And they forced, except for the first time in 100 years of judicial, judicial history, the US Supreme Court ordered another judiciary to recuse itself from cases because they're all in bed with Massey. They've also corrupted every relevant official, public official, elected official in the state of West Virginia. So as Bill often points out, Every poll that's been taken in West Virginia showed that at least two-thirds of the people in West Virginia want an immediate end to mountaintop removal mining. But there's not a single politician in the state who will say that out loud, because they know the coal industry will destroy them, and they get rewarded with money for not saying it every year. Now, if you drive, any of you who decides to come down to Charleston with us this week to do this march, um, and um, if you drive out of Charleston, they have these kind of Potemkin villages where they've preserved the forest right next to the road, right up to the first and top ridge line. So the people in West Virginia, unless you live up in the hollows, you don't see this happening. But if you fly over that first ridge line, you'll see the devastation. And that's why, you know, one of the things we did in this movie, that Bill did in this movie, was to get these most extraordinary aerial shots of what's happening in West Virginia. Because otherwise you're not going to see it. Because they've carefully preserved it so that, that they can keep it secret from the, from the people. And that's why I say, if the American people could see what was happening, they would, there would be a revolution. But they don't see it because the press has been muzzled the government has been muzzled, and, and the agencies that are supposed to protect West Virginians from the polluters have been, have been captured by the industry they're supposed to regulate. They become sock puppets for the coal industry. And so democracy has been subverted, the press has been silenced, and the public um, has, is beleaguered and beaten. Let's do this. Let's take a look at a clip. And then I want to ask the two of you about um, the role that a documentary film like this can play in trying to get the word out and the role of documentary as journalism. So let's take a look at the first clip from the film. I recently flew over the coal fields in the Appalachians and I saw something that if the American people could see it, there'd be a revolution in this country. We are cutting down the Appalachian Mountains, literally. The whole line goes all the way back 10 or 12 miles. Absolutely gigantic. They're blowing the tops off the mountains to get at the coal seams beneath. Coal is sort of like a layer cake. You've got a layer of rock, layer of coal, layer of rock, layer of coal. And they just keep this process up until they literally reduce the mountain to rubble. They detonate 2,500 tons of explosives every day. An explosive power the size of a Hiroshima bomb once a week. You feel like you're under attack. I mean, it's happening two or three times a day, every day. 
that, that bucket that you see at the end, um, it looks like the kind of bucket that you'd see on a street here, but you could put eight complete dump trucks inside of that bucket. Um, and that, that, uh, that crane is 22 stories high, so it's you know, bigger than most, most buildings. Let me ask Bill about this, because I want to understand, um, I referenced it before the clip, um, documentaries serve different purposes. They can be educational, they can be sometimes entertaining, uh, but in this case, um, it strikes me that this is documentary as um, activism to a certain extent, journalism uh, to a great extent. How do you define documentary, and how do you define documentary as you're, as you're using that, um, that form uh, with this film? Well, there are, as you mentioned, there are very kinds of documentaries. Classic expositional documentaries that are designed simply to give you the information. Polemics, where you really get a sense that the filmmaker started with a conclusion and is looking for a piece of information to stitch together in a fabric to support that conclusion. And then there are what I hope are really explorations where you, the audience member, feel like you're going with the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Now, the conclusion of that journey may be to uh, imbue a sense of activism in the audience. But if the film isn't dramatically engaging and inspiring and moving, then we won't want to go. So one of the powerful tools that documentary filmmakers have as journalists is not just the quality of research and the period of time and the level of work they can do, which is uncommon in the world of journalism today. So I can work for three years with six people full time on one story, which is not something almost any journalists have the luxury of being able to do in today's diminished media landscape. But also we have the capacity to kind of evoke different sorts of experiences for people with these great sweeping moving shots like the helicopter shots that you just saw or the use of music or sound design. So it's true that if ultimately what you're filming is an adult beating a child on the street, if you just film the facts, you know, most of us will feel moved by that, we'll take a side, we'll feel activism, we'll be enraged, but that isn't because we've actually begun with an activist agenda, that's what the facts are. As Bobby mentioned, in this case, the coal industry has so successfully kept the public from the facts. Like for example, how many of you know that 50% of the electricity in the country comes from coal? Or that two trillion pounds a year are moved through our rail traffic, half the rail traffic in the United States. All the grain, we're the largest grain producer in the country, all the forest products, we're the largest forest products producer in the world, excuse me. All the chemical products, second biggest in the world, steel products, second biggest in the world, all the cars, all the consumer goods, everything that you use that commonly moves by rail, that's half, the other half is coal. Or how about dams? So like the biggest civil engineering project in the history of America, the Hoover Dam, the biggest civil engineering project in the history of Latin America, the Ixtapa Falls Dam, the third biggest dam in this hemisphere, Brushy Forks, West Virginia, a mining company pushed a bunch of dirt into a hollow and has now dumped 9.8 billion gallons of toxic sludge behind it. It leaks. There are 300, north of 300 dams just like that in Appalachia, another 600 around America. None of us know this. Or how about the fact that if you stood 100 feet away from a nuclear-fired power plant, you would be experiencing one one-hundredth the radioactivity you get from standing the same distance from a coal-fired power plant. A coal-fired power plant is 100 times more radioactive to stand near than a nuclear-fired power plant. So if I reveal these facts, which are yeah. not really my interpretation, they're just facts, but if I share them with people who don't know, it comes across as activism, where really it's just an attempt to balance the whitewashing that's going on with a massive flow of coal industry ads. And documentaries have you know, one of the few tools we have to kind of create an educated and illuminated public. And, and so this is a story that let, obviously... Let me just add something to that. 
because you know what I didn't really have anything to do with this documentary. Um, I didn't see it until it was done. But um, to me, this is the I, I, it is it's become a critical tool of people who want democracy in our country. Uh, we don't you know because of and all the people who are members of the Fourth Estate here will recognize this that that. Um, the investigative journalism is essentially disappearing in our country. Eighty-five percent of the investiga of the of the jobs for investigative journalism have disappeared over the past fifteen years, for a number of reasons. But the one place that investigative journalism is still alive is in documentary filmmaking, and it's very, very effective. People wouldn't know about fracking if it weren't for the movie Gaslands. A lot of people would believe that global warming is a hoax if they hadn't seen Inconvenient Truth. And this is the one area where we have left where we can talk to the American pub public and tell them facts of the kind that Bill just recited and take the time to go in and tell the story of what's happening to our country and to our democracy is documentary filmmaking. Let me ask you a question about making the film specifically um, because I think it relates to what... Uh what the two of you were just saying, um, you know, there's there's a, a few dozen people sitting in the audience with us here, and there's um, many more that that have the ability to, and who are listening to this now via iTunes and through this podcast. So I want to understand and and ask the question that would be relevant to all of them, and that is, the story continues now. We we hear about uh, things that are happening in the future related to this issue, and um, you know, marches that are happening next week. Tell me, take me backwards for a minute, and help me understand how you got involved with this particular story, how you, what was the, and let's talk about it from a documentary, documentarian's point of view, what was the original sort of kernel, and, and, then, and, then, it, and then where did it take you? It, I'm sure it took you in directions you didn't expect. Well, you couldn't this, have predicted where you were going to end up. The story of, of uh, our film, The Last Mountain, is ultimately centered on a particular community in the Coal River Valley who are fighting for the last great mountain in central Appalachia. And the battle is between the mining industry that wants to blow it up and rip the coal out, savage the landscape, and the locals who want to stop them and build a wind farm instead. And implicitly, of course, it's a battle for our energy future. And, and the tools that they, uh, locals have to use are the democratic tools that, that Bobby described earlier. So the genesis of this for me um, was a longstanding interest in things environmental. I, I, you know, I began my work life as an inventor. And um, I, my first company, I designed air pollution control systems for power plants, so I spent a lot of my you know, young years climbing power plants to put in systems to drop air pollution. And I saw the scale of the air pollution coming out of coal-fired power plants. But it was then Bobby's book, Crimes Against Nature, which actually did a beautiful job of interconnecting the erosion of democratic principles and the destruction of our public welfare and public environment. And then the reporting of my producing partner, Clara Bingham, who went to Appalachia and started meeting with whistleblowers who were blowing the whistle on the Bush administration's failure to enforce the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act because these, the Cumberland Plateau you see being destroyed in this movie is actually the source of drinking fresh drinking water supply for most of the East Coast of the United States. So the poison they're dumping there is coming places like this. And then began the search for a community that would actually kind of distill these issues in a way that we could actually tell a story and be connected. And this extraordinary collection of ordinary Americans who are fighting in this one place in Coal River Mountain, a former waitress, a retired Marine, a 92-year-old grandmother in a wheelchair, college students coming from around the United States, AARP members driving down from New York or up from Alabama, 
who, as Bobby said, are engaged right now in the largest set of acts of civil disobedience in America since the civil rights movement. And this community of folks, their courage, their character, their charisma, the risks that they're taking for our common benefit, you know, that was the story that kind of crystallized the moment for me. Let's take a look at one more clip, and then I want to get to questions from the audience. So we'll do our second clip in just a second. Here we go. I want to get to some questions from the audience for these two gentlemen. So if you do have a question, um, not only raise your hand, but we're going to bring a microphone to you so that uh, folks who are listening in on this podcast can hear your question. So let's go ahead and take a couple questions. And there's one in the second row near the center. Hello. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm from Puerto Rico, and uh, there is a debate going on in the island about building a natural gas pipeline. Um, I know that you were quoted as saying that uh, natural gas and solar energy um, should form an alliance to take on uh, big coal and big oil, right? Um, but isn't there enough evidence to point out that natural gas is just, in fact, another fossil fuel and that solar energy is cheaper and more efficient and cleaner and probably the best for, you know, the people? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that... Um, that uh, that solar and wind uh, combined um, are the best options. So I, I think natural gas, if you have to put natural gas up against coal, I'd say natural gas is a lot better than coal. And to the extent that we want to change very, very quickly and get off of coal, um, coal very quickly, it's easy to convert a coal plant to a natural gas plant. And you can do that almost anywhere because the natural gas uh, pipelines are ubiquitous and that natural gas has 40% of the carbon and it has none of the mercury, none of the ozone particulates, and almost none of the acid rain. So that it's preferable to coal and you don't end up with mountaintops being destroyed. But I would not 
advocate a policy of building new natural gas plants because I think um, they last for 50 years and we ought to be building solar and we ought to be building wind and I'm building those right now and we, you can build them for a fraction of the cost. It's cheaper than any fossil fuel. So that's what we ought to be doing. Right here, second row. Another question, second row. Um, the other opposition is nuclear power versus coal. They're pitted against one another quite a bit. Uh, and I wondered how you felt about that. You really answered it by saying that solar and wind are the way to go. But right now you hear a great many arguments, we better stick with, with nuclear energy because it's better than coal. Well, first of all, um, nuclear, I, I basically think that what we ought to start with is a fair market where the government doesn't endorse historical and destructive fuels and enforces the laws equally, broadly, completely, um, and with vigor. And if that happened, nuclear firepower plants would be destroyed on the economics because there's never been a nuclear firepower plant built in the United States without the federal government guarantee the loans to build it because it's too risky for anybody to put up the money first. Um, second, the coal industry is now taking the disaster in Japan as an opportunity to tell us that, and as you know, part of the ongoing storytelling, that we should embrace coal even more passionately than we already have. But it's a curious thing that here we are with the biggest disaster in the West in, in nuclear in 50 years, and not a single person's dead. I mean, it's a terrible, horrible thing, but no one died. Whereas the National Academy of Sciences says that 47,000 Americans die prematurely every single year from the, just the emissions of coal-fired power plants. So uh, if we actually enforce the, enforced the laws, made the nuclear guys pay their own bills, made the coal industry actually pay for the contaminating of our drinking water and the pollution of our children and the destruction of our landscape. We just made them pay the cost of putting it back the way it was. You'd see that wind and solar would take off immediately because economically they're so favored if you don't tilt the landscape with giant political donations in favor of the incumbent fuels like nuclear. We've the, um, I, I, the new people always say to me, well, um, well, you know, why aren't you for nuke? And I said, oh, I'm all for nuke. If, as soon as they make it cheap, or as soon as they make it economical, and they make it safe. And right now, it's neither. It, it simply could not compete. I'm uh, on a, on a, I'm an a, associated with a company that's building a, a uh, the biggest power plant in America now, and it's a solar power plant, solar thermal plant in the Mojave Desert. And we're building it at a cost of $3 billion a gigawatt. A coal plant costs $3 billion a gigawatt, but once you build our plant, it's free energy forever because the photons are hitting the earth every day for free. Once you build that coal plant, now you've got to go cut down the Appalachians, ship them across the country, rail yards, burn the coal, poison every fish in America, kill 47,000 people a year from ozone and particulates, acidify the lakes, and that's the real, the big cost happen after you build the plant. A nuke plant costs between 11 and $14 billion a gigawatt. So it's almost five times the expense of building a solar plant. There's not a single utility in this country that will build a nuke plant unless 100% of the construction costs are paid for by the federal taxpayer. Not only that, we then have to bear the cost of storing their waste for the next 30,000 years, which is five times the length of recorded human history. Um, and when they say they're safe, I say, well, if you're safe, 
then get an insurance policy like everybody else. Every industry in this country has to self-insure. But the nuke industry is so dangerous that it could not get an insurance policy or it would be bankrupt. So it had to go to Congress in a sleazy legislative maneuver in the middle of the night and get the Price-Anderson Act passed, which shifts the burden of risk from their industry from themselves to the American public. So they get to operate uninsured. And if you go look at your homeowner's policy, every homeowner's policy in America has a provision in it that says if this policy does not insure you against radiation contamination of your home by, because of an accident in a nuclear power plant. So if somebody radiates your home on one of these plants to an accident, you're stuck with it. They don't have to pay you back. And who else has that kind of protection? Well, in, we live in, I'm for free market capitalism. And in a free market, first of all, we shouldn't be giving a trillion dollars in subsidies to oil and a trillion dollars to coal every year. These are established, mature industries. They shouldn't be getting any subsidies. Second of all, we shouldn't be, um, it, the, in, a, in a capitalist society, the insurance industry is the final arbiter of risk. And it's not a bunch of hippies in tie-dyed t-shirts who are saying that nuclear power is risky. It's, you know, guys from AIG with black, you know, suits and, and white shirts who are saying, you're so risky that we can't write an insurance policy for you that's, that's inexpensive enough that it wouldn't drive you into bankruptcy. So um, they're not anywhere near safe. And it's not just me saying that. It's the entire insurance industry in this country that's saying it. I want to get to one more question from the audience. Um, and it's a woman sitting here with the green scarf in the third, second row. Hi. Um, going back to the documentary, I know when you're highlighting realities of what the coal plants are doing, you're obviously going to be faced with opposition. And I was wondering if you had any of that or if the movie highlights any of those realities and really what their stance was um, when, I, was, I don't know what the team that was going into, but what, what that was looking like when you're facing huge coal plants and what they would say to you. Well, the first that the... Um, challenges are born and the real genuine risks in making this particular film and frankly the film I did before this was a human rights film where I lived with the poorest people in this hemisphere and there were some really brutal folks after them and the folks I was with and they're mostly the risks are mostly being borne by the locals so the woman you saw here in this quick clip is an example of locals and they've been shot at had their trucks driven off the roads had their animals you know destroyed obliterated hung gutted and hung They've been and dogs hanged, and the um, so there's a lot of assault, kind of a general atmosphere of intimidation for the locals. Um, for us as filmmakers, you know, we meet, we meet with tension and um, frustration, and and some of it quite understandable because what the mining executives do is they come to Wall Street, and they say, you know what, we can get rid of some more workers and cut our costs and make more profits, so buy up our stock. So if you're in West Virginia, the uh, employment has dropped, for example, from 150,000 workers to 15,000 in the last 40 years, while production has soared. So they're making more stuff with less people. That's what they tell here. When they go down to West Virginia, what they say is those damn pesky environmentalists are going to make the few of you who still have jobs lose your jobs. Mm -hmm. And that the waitress and the filmmaker here are the genuine risks to your ability to provide for your family. And if, you know... 
whatever you feel you'd like to do about that, go right ahead. And so there is a, an atmosphere of frustration and intimidation that's born out of their sense of vulnerability, but not necessarily out of the facts. Um, we didn't feel, I didn't ever felt like our camera crew was really a danger. Um, what you do feel, of course, is by celebrating and bringing a spotlight on the local folks that the tension on them increases. And that's a little, um, but, you know, as they say to me every time I worry about them, they're, they're older than 21, they can decide for themselves. Um, if, I, if I have a moment, I want to ask a last question, sorry. Uh, and we'll try to keep it brief, we're almost out of time. But um, clearly in the, in the last couple of years, we've seen um, tremendous... Um, Tremendous uh, environmental uh, disasters um, as a result of um, uh, energy policy or energy um, exploration, if you will. Um, and I'm wondering if you could help us understand to what extent that fact, where we are now, about to enter another presidential election uh, cycle, uh, what you think that experience of, of what we've gone through with the the Earth has gone through the last two years, two, three years, will have, what impact it will have on not only the election cycle, but, but on sort of awareness around these issues going forward. Well, I want to, and Bobby may want to comment on this too, but I want to just offer three quick notions. First, you know, we've talked about the localized destruction here, but in fact, and you probably know this, uh, the mining and burning of coal is the number one, number two, number three, number four source of greenhouse gases in the world. So in the known universe, there's 100 billion billion planets. We know of one that sustains life, human life. And however you feel about it, our dependence on coal is driving the largest ex scientific experiment in the history of, this, of, of Earth. And we're doing it. Now, you know, some of us think that's going to go badly. Some folks may think that might be okay. It seems like a pretty big gamble to me. That's the first thing. The second thing is energy policy at the absolute core of our economic challenges. We talk about trade deficit with China. That's Piker's money compared to our trade deficit on fuel oil. I mean, we're way more importing fuel oil than we are goods from China. Our dependence on natural gas and foreign oil is putting the entire economy at risk. And how many American kids would be in Iraq right now if we actually you know, were completely fuel independent? How many super tankers, excuse me, how many aircraft carriers would we have protecting super tankers in the Persian Gulf? How many despots would we prop up with lots of flow of capital if we weren't dependent on foreign fuel? But that, in a way, for me, isn't really the biggest thing. The biggest thing is that the new energy economy that's being, that we've basically been taught as Americans by this industry and the political hacks that they fund, and by the way, they fund to the tune of $1.5 billion of political donations in the last 10 years alone. That's a lot of money. That what we're being told is we can't do any better than the 17th century technology of burning rocks. When, in fact, a new energy economy that would create hundreds of thousands of new jobs per year, release us from all this trade oil, uh, tra excuse me, trade deficits and uh, um, uh, balance of payment problems, and could liberate the United States industrial economy, that is right before us. I mean, we have the technology, the economics are good, we're the Saudi Arabia of wind, we've got more wind resources than any other country in the world, we've got extraordinary solar resources, and what's happening right now is that the American public is being kept from that future by a wall of political donations and political corruption. That pisses. That really pisses me off. The, uh, the so the the question from the audience is, what can we do? Uh, can you tell people uh, where they can get more information? Just quickly, some uh, places. They can go to get well, one, one thing I one thing I would like to talk about is that um, we're having a march in West Virginia. 
on June 6th through June 11th, and it's a march on Blair Mountain, which is one of the last mountains left um, other than uh, Coal Mountain in the Appalachians. And Blair Mountain was the site of the biggest armed civil uh, insurrection in American history other than the Civil War. Between 10 and 15,000 miners marched on Blair in 1921 to confront the coal industry. It was actually, it's an interesting story because it was kicked off, there's a movie called Matawan that's about this incident. And it's, uh, there was a famous sheriff whose name was Sid Hatfield. The sheriff's in West Virginia, then as today, was a coal town. And the coal companies owned the homes, they owned the shops, they owned the mines, they owned everything. And the local sheriffs, along with armed thugs who were hired by the coal industry and Pinkertons, were... Uh, were employed to evict mining families. If a miner was injured, their family needed to be evicted from the home. And to, uh, and to punish union organizers who came in or troublesome workers who tried to organize unions, the sheriffs would go in, beat them up, uh, jail them, escort them to the county lines, in some cases murder them. There was one local sheriff who would not, who had been a miner in his teens himself, and he refused to take coal industry money. His name was Sid Hatfield. He was one of the, part of the famous Hatfield-McCoy family. And he um, was, uh, he was murdered on the courthouse steps in uh, Logan County, who was the Mingo County Sheriff. He was uh, murdered on the courthouse steps by the coal industry. Uh, he was disarmed and shot dead, executed, and it caused an uprising where 10 to 15,000 miners marched on Charleston to confront the coal industry, and they had to go over Blair Mountain. They were met there with uh, Pinkertons, with machine guns who gunned them down. It was a six-day gun battle. Uh, they were uh, Pinkertons in uh, pillboxes that were made by the, the coal industry. President Warren, Warren Harding, who himself was in the pocket of the coal industry, ordered the United States Air Force to bomb the miners. They dropped bombs with, uh, with uh, bombers, and they dropped poison gas on the miners to disperse them. And the miners ultimately dispersed, but it was the beginning of the union movement, and the United Mine Workers unionized Mingo County for the first time, and then unionized all the coal fields in southern Appalachia. And it was the beginning of the union movement, really the birthplace of the union movement in our country. And it was the beginning of the creation of a middle class in our country that sustained our economy, our prosperity, and our democracy for the next 60 years until now. And today, as the unions are under attack in Michigan, in Iowa, in, uh, in states all over our country, and we have the Citizens United case, which is now destroyed 100 years of uh, statutory prohibition against corporations contributing to government. And as you, we see, the power of corporations in the ascending and the power of the common man and of unions being destroyed in this country, Massey Cole has announced that it is going to blow up uh, Blair Mountain. So United Mine Workers has joined forces with the environmental community, Sierra Club, NRDC, and a number of other environmental groups from all over Appalachia, Appalachian Voices and Waterkeeper Alliance, to march on Blair Mountain. And uh, my family is going to go down on June 6th and march for retrace the step of the miners, along with hundreds of others. 
And on June 10th, we're going to camp at the bottom of Blair Mountain. On June 11th, we're going to march up Blair Mountain. And some people are going to choose to be arrested. Others are just going to make the march. But everybody is invited. The film is The Last Mountain. And uh, Bill uh, wanted to make a, a final point well, as I, we wrap up. So I uh, want to answer your question and, briefly, and frankly, please. yes, and respond to your frustration. The first is that we didn't make this movie about people who have found a problem. We made a movie about people found a problem and a solution. And the story is of local folks like us who actually have now fought the coal industry to a standstill. And in fact, the political change that we saw when the Bush administration went out and Obama came in has in this particular case resulted in 80 mountains that were permitted to be destroyed or in line to be destroyed not being destroyed, permits being pulled from existing mines, mine safety standards changing so that mines that were unsafe were killing Americans being shut down. So you, you know, first of all, we've seen in the upwell, when we, when we fought our way through and elected the first ever junior black senator from Illinois to become president of the United States, we saw how citizen democracy can really work. If you go to our website, there's a lot of in particular examples, but I'll give you one. I'm, I'm from uh, Massachusetts. We lobbied the state legislature, and that can mean 10 people going. It doesn't have to be a big complicated thing, to give us the right to buy green power. Not to force the utilities to make it, just could we please have the choice? And as we've done that, more and more people in my state are buying green power deliberately, and we pay a little more for it. We're now taking, there's two big coal plants in this state, and one's now being shut down on the economics. More people are just saying they'd rather buy power coming from wind. They don't mind paying 10 bucks a month more. And they can give up one of those many consumer goods that we're endlessly being pushed to consume. And we're seeing the coal plants just shutting down in a really simple way. It was an incredibly small grassroots people. They just went and talked to their state reps. So there's, there's a tier of things on the Last Mountain Film website. You can actually check them out. Hopefully you'll find something you find appealing. So uh, to get more information, the film is The Last Mountain. Uh, the website is thelastmountainmovie.com. The film is opening uh, this month, month of June, opening today in New York and in other cities. Uh, you can see it today around the corner at the Sunshine Theater, and it'll be in other cities. You can go to the film's website, thelastmountainmovie.com, to get more information on where to see the film, how to get more involved, how to get more information. We're out of time completely. I want to thank Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Haney for being here with us today, and congratulations. Thank you again so much to our guests. Don't forget, guys, you can head over to apple.com forward slash Soho as well to find out about all the upcoming events we have here at the store. There's always something happening, so you don't want to miss it. Also, you can download for free the Apple Store app, totally free, on your iOS device. So if you have an iPod Touch, an iPad, or an iPhone, you can download this app. It'll tell you exactly who's going to be here and when and why. You can even sign up for workshops and make appointments to see our technicians. It's pretty cool. Thank you so much, guys, for coming out. We hope you enjoyed the event, and we hope to see you the next one. Take care and have a wonderful evening.